0: How about if we pray together, church? God, we thank you for this time in which you've gathered us together to refocus us, to bring our thoughts in line with your thoughts, to make our ways like your ways. God, we praise you in the name of Jesus, he alone who is worthy of praise because of what he did in our life. We thank you and praise you for the reality that we've just declared to you. You are holy. It's in Jesus' name that we proclaim this. Amen and amen. How about if you have a seat, church? Back in May of this year, um, God really made it really clear to me that I was supposed to do this How Great series and talking to Michael back in summertime around June, I said to him, Michael, I I believe I need to do a a four-part series. I want to kick it off right after Labor Day. Um, Yeah, I was thinking that John would be done, okay? So John wasn't done, and and so we stretched it out, and uh, I said, you know, I still want to do this thing right after John is done. Um, So a a short four-part thing, how great is our God next week? How great the fall. The following week, how great the rescue. And the fourth week, how great our future. Here's why it resonated with me back in May. I'm looking at the book of Isaiah, and I see Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah said this in chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lofty and exalted upon his throne And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood seraphim. With six wings they covered themselves, and they flew, and they called out. Isaiah said literally, they had six wings on their body one covered their feet, one covered their mouth and their eyes, and one with which they flew. And as they flew throughout the temple, they cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The very basis of the song that you just sang. And Isaiah said, at the cry of holy, 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 the foundations of the temple trembled and shook. And Isaiah said, woe to me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King of glory. We need to be reminded in a time like this who's in control. That's what Isaiah was reminded of. In the midst of the hurricanes, in the midst of the political turmoil, in the midst of world trauma, God wants us to remember just who's in control and just how great he is Because I find very often we become absorbed with all the little things going on in our world around us, with all the issues surrounding us, and we lose perspective of just who is in control. So here we come into this thing called how great, because this is a day to reroute ourselves in the greatness of our God, and to remember who He is when He speaks to us. So we enter into this first understanding that our God is a communicator. God is like us. He wants to communicate to his people. We love to communicate to other people. We find this in Hebrews 1.1, that God loves to communicate. He says this, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. So God speaks in the Old Testament, in the old days. God speaks in the new days, in the New Testament, through His Son. How did He do it? He linked it together through the creating of the universe. How interesting that the writer of Hebrews did not link God's communication style with what He did on the cross, or what He did in the tomb, or what He did in the manger, but rather what He did in creation through the universe That's what we're going to look at this morning. What is our God doing in the universe and how does He want to speak to us? Because He communicates with us an expression of the heart. We only have to reach in our pockets and pull out our cell phones to say, yep, we do desire to communicate. That's why we own those things. If we didn't desire to communicate, we wouldn't own a cell phone. If you walk into Panera, Starbucks, Beaners, I guess they call it Biggies now, or Big B or something like that. If you walk in there, you don't find tables with one chair. You find it with two chairs, three chairs, four chairs. Why? Because it'd be a lonely place if it was only tables with one chair. We go in there because we want to hang out with other people, we want to connect. Where does that come from? The desire that God placed within us. Because God is a communicator, and He placed it within us to want to communicate. But here's the truth. We are the natural. He is the supernatural. The natural cannot comprehend the supernatural. And so it requires God to reach out to us. We can only know about God if he chooses to let us know what he wants us to know about him. The only things that we know about God are those which he tells us because we're locked in this time-space continuum. He's outside of that so God desires to speak to us, that's why he gave us the Bible. It's a book of communication, it's your God talking to you, and this is what he tells us in Second Peter 1.20, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of men. should camp on that. It's not originating from men. It originated with the heart of God, speaking through men to write it down. So he says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. So your Bible that you hold in your hands is a distinct expression of his desire to reveal himself to you. I want him to reveal himself to you this morning because our God is great, and I have ways of showing you that this morning. Here's one example of that. Let's go to Psalm 19.1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Look at the very first four sentences. Stop right there. Telling, declaring, speech reveals knowledge. That's your God. Communicating. Hey, listen up. I want you to understand. I'm trying to communicate to you. But this is what he says next. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. So it's a silent revelation, but nonetheless a revelation of God. It's unmistakable. And then he finishes by saying this. Their line has gone throughout all the earth, and their utterances, meaning constant talking, to the end of the earth. The word utterances in Hebrew is like this. If you've ever gone to a party, a social event, where there's so many people talking when you walk in the room, you feel like you have to shout to be heard, that's the word utterances. All of creation constantly speaking about who this God is. So it's saying, it's clear. Look at the universe. It declares my majesty and my massiveness. In order to get this in our minds, how this operates. I want to go all the way back to the beginning, to literally to the beginning, to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Seven very simple Hebrew words. Now, I know if you count up there, you see ten, right? Well, in the English language, it takes more words to say it. But in the Hebrew language, it only took seven. Seven very distinct words that are the foundation of everything that follows. Everything in the Bible afterwards follows a foundation statement. And here's the three purposes in this particular statement. Number one, to identify the source. What's the source? God. Number two, to explain the origin of everything that is in the world. And number three, to tie the work of God in the past with the work of God in the future. Because everything that follows hinges on God carrying out this activity. So the foundation of everything that is summed up in Bereshit, Elohim, Barah, in the beginning, God. Bereshit, the very first word, in the beginning, doesn't say when, just that it was. Elohim, the next word used, is a plural form or title for God. You would say plural, what? God is One plural form for God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So even in the Hebrew language, in the very beginning, in the very first sentence of the Bible, Bereshit Elohim, God who is three in one. How do we know that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. You've got the Spirit at creation and God the Father at creation. And then Scripture tells us that God created everything that is through the power and the majesty of the Son. So even the Hebrew writers captured it when they said Elohim, the plural God. You've got a defense for the Trinity in the very beginning. And then this word, bara, Bereshit, Elohim, bara. It's a word that's used of only something God can do. Nothing that man can do. So the word bara created only the works of God and it's only used three times in the creation story. Bara, the universe. Bara, the animals, wildlife, and creeping things. Bara, you. Three times God bara and brought in a creation. So at the foundation stands the creation. So you ask yourself this question, what is at the heart of God when he caused Moses to write down, "Bereshit Elohim, Barah, this is what's at his heart, I am the Lord, I am God, and there is no other. I am God. I am everything that there is. Don't bother looking for anything else, any other source. I am the one. There is no one else. He didn't stop there. In Genesis 1-1, he didn't just say, Bereshit Elohim Barah. He said in Genesis 1-1, I did something. I created the heavens and the earth. I created the heavens and the earth. So you look at that and say, okay, how did you do that? How did that actually happen? Do you know that Scripture actually tells us how God did that? at least portion of it. Look with me up on the screen at Psalm 33.6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. So our God breathes out stars. Do you want to look in the mouth of God this morning? I mean, do you? Because I do. Let's do that together. Let's look in the mouth of God because God breathes out stars. Let's look at the first image of that. Astronomers call this a stellar nursery. This stellar nursery is is just so far away, I can't begin to describe it to you, and it's so big, it was hard for me to even capture the thought of how we would describe this, so here's what I did. Astronomers discovered that part of the stellar nursery has a little finger that shoots out of it. What you're about to see on the screen is called the Eagle Nebula. It's just the little finger of the stellar nursery, the Eagle Nebula is 57 trillion miles long. Just the little finger. That didn't overwhelm you too much, right? Okay, so let's, let's look at it this way because it's very hard in the human mind to get those kind of distances down. So here's what I thought I would do. I would associate distances with time because we're time creatures. We can think in time. So if I said, let's go back in time a million seconds ago, We would go back 12 days. It's a million seconds. A million seconds, 12 days. But if I said, let's go back a billion seconds ago, you'd say, oh, that'd be like, I don't know, March? How long ago would that be? It would be March, March of 1980. So a million seconds, 12 days. A billion seconds, March 1980. How about if we go back a trillion seconds in time? You're thinking, oh, that's like George Washington, right? A trillion seconds in time, 29,700 B.C. Gives a new perspective on our national debt, doesn't it? $16 trillion, but I'm not about to get into politics this morning. It wasn't the concept here, but a billion, a million, or a trillion, put that in your frame of reference. You understand why we have to say, we can't use tape measures to measure God. We can't use yardsticks. When we're talking about a God who can breathe stars into existence, they come out of his mouth. How big and how great is our God? When I came to Christ, I've never shared this at New Hope before, but personally, I was a teenager. I grew up in church, but I never put my stake in the ground to say, this is the moment when I'm going to declare that I believe in Jesus Christ. It happened as the result of me hanging out with some friends when I was 14 years old. I'm 14 years old, it's a Wednesday night, and the sky is just incredibly black, a velvet black sky, and my friends and I, who I went to church with, had come from a Bible study, and we were talking about God's activity in creation. We are just looking up at the stars, and we had very fresh in our mind Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. We were just looking at it, trying to fathom the massiveness of God. My friends didn't know it, but when they left, I was in Whitehall, Michigan. They went back to their homes, and I had a little distance to walk to my parents' home. And as I'm walking up the street, making my way towards my parents' house, there, there were no street lights, no city lights. It was just a rural area. And I was overwhelmed with the presence of God in creation. And in that point, I went to my knees said, God, I've never put my stake in the ground before, but I believe in you. I believe in your son, Jesus. From now on, I'm driving my stake in the ground. This is who I will be. So my dad, as a result of that, went out and bought me a telescope. He bought one for my brothers and myself, and we shared this telescope, and we got to explore the heavens. And I talked with my science teachers. I became fascinated with things of astronomy. After I'd stare at my neighbors with a telescope during the daytime, I'd turn it towards the sky at nighttime, okay? I began watching the stars and watching the moon, and I saw Saturn, and I thought, wow, that's powerful. But then my dad went one step further and bought us a filter that we could look at the sun during the daytime, and I began to realize the massiveness of our sun and how small we are next to the sun Because our star, our sun, looked so big to me. I began to do some research on it. I understood we can put 960,000 Earths inside our sun. That's how big it is. But then I began to discover, looking at science, that it's really not as big as I thought it was. It's great but it's not as great as what we're about to see. Let me show you the next image on the screen because what you see to my left, to your left also, the third one over, the little orange ball, represents our sun compared to the next closest star nearest to us. And that one compared to the blue star, that one's called Sirius. A little shout out for the, the satellite radio, okay? That's Sirius. It's that big. It's that big compared to our sun. And these things began to mess with me as I began to realize the massiveness of our God. And I took it in and began to process how great is our God, even went one step further with me when I looked at the next star, the next biggest star, bigger than Sirius, is called Betelgeuse. And when you look at the little dot up there in the top, that's the size of our sun next to Betelgeuse. Some people call it Betelgeuse. You can call it whatever you want it's huge. It's massive. It's so big that if you put it inside our solar system, its edges would reach all the way out to Earth's orbit around the sun. That's how big Betelgeuse is. 262 trillion Earths can fit inside it. And yet, that's just the star closest to us that we can identify by its size. The third star totally messed me up, Musifi. Musifi is bigger yet. And I want you to see this one because it's a red dot. This is an actual astronomical photograph that you see on the screen. Musifi is called the Red Garnet Star. And it is so large that if it was put inside our solar system, its edges would reach all the way out to the rings of Saturn. Saturn's rotation around our sun. That's how big that particular star is, and here's what's remarkable about it. It's 38,000 times brighter than our sun. And just because of God's pleasure, he decided to plant it there so that we can see it in the nighttime sky. That little red garnet star blinking out there saying, hey, I breathed this out. I'm the God who breathes stars. Now, if those first three didn't do it for you, let's go to the next one. Because the next one astronomers I learned back in the 1970s call the big dog, Canis Majoris. Look at the little white dot that you see next to Canis Majoris. That's our sun. You know how big our sun is. You can put one billion of our suns inside Canis Majoris. Every star that you've seen so far is inside the Milky Way galaxy. Every one of them are contained within our neighborhood, in our backyard, and God decided to place that one at a distance far enough away that it won't harm our solar system or our planet. But Canis Majoris is big enough that we can step back and say, how great is our God that he can breathe out something like this. Now, I knew that that wouldn't do it for you. I knew that you needed to see something that would help you put together the pieces of how magnificent our God is. So what we have is a little two-minute and 52-second video that starts at our moon and takes us all the way to Canis Majoris. Let's start that and allow you to watch and see what God has done for us. Is that rock, the moon, the white one on the left, disappearing? Mars, pretty good size. Venus, not so big next to Earth. We are a favorite planet, aren't we? A little blue sphere. But we're smaller than Neptune. Jupiter dwarfs us. And then we look at our sun. We move from the giants into what's known as the red giants, and then moving over into the hyper giants. Then along comes Antares, and then Musifi, and Musifi's big brother, the big dog. Canis Majoris, the red hypergiant. That doesn't help us entirely, so let's look for planet Earth on that screen. See that little dot? Now, how long would it take us to imagine the size of that planet? Well, if we were to jump into an airliner and fly around the surface of it, a passenger airliner, watch this. If we could travel at 900 kilometers an hour, how long would it take? 1,100 years at 900 miles an hour to fly over the surface of something that God breathed out. How big is our galaxy? How big is our God? There's billions of galaxies out there. We're just one among many. And yet, our God said to us, do you realize why I called you a vapor? James says that, James 4.14. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes Away. I looked on the blog sites and all the blogospheres and all the comments when I have researched and found this video a time ago, and individuals were posting comments like, I feel so insignificant. I feel so small. Some people would want to cry out like Job and David did. I, I barely can understand him because he's so awesome. And at the prospect of seeing the massiveness of the universe, you might just want to say, I am insignificant. This is how Job said it. Job twenty six fourteen. These are but the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? You might want to do right now what David did. David said, Who am I that you would even consider me? That you would even cast your attention towards me? This is the way he said it in Psalms 8.3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? How amazing that these are only the works of his fingers. Now, if you're like David, if you're like Job, if you're like me, you might say, I feel like a bug. Well, let me talk to you about bugs, okay? Let's go from the universe and the monster sphere down to the bugs because this is what Genesis one twenty four says, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle, and creeping things. Well, I'm a guy. I like creeping things, okay? So just deal with it, ladies. But here's a, here's a little creeping thing that I want to talk to you about. All summer long, you saw a creeping thing fluttering around called a moth, Did you know that moths have little ears, little moth ears, and they need those ears to keep their balance as they fly? But God knew that film and dirt could build up inside the ears of the mite, but only in one particular ear, apparently, because God has caused mites to live in the ear of the moth. You think a moth is small. Try finding a moth's ear and then finding a mite inside the moth's ear. But here's the remarkable thing. If a mite gets in both ears of the moth, the moth can't fly. It's imbalanced. So they can only go in one ear. How do they know which ear to go into? Is there a little no vacancy sign in there when they arrive? Somehow God has directed mites to live inside that ear because moths are the favorite food of bats. And moths need to be able to hear the clicking sound that bats make so that they can evade them and drop and dive away. Because moths are eaten by bats. But God even cared about moths. Here's my next favorite bug. It's called the bombardier beetle. I love this beetle. I love what he does because he confounds man. As a matter of fact, this is an explosive beetle. He contains two chambers inside his abdomen, and those chambers contain explosive elements that, when mixed together in an oxygenated environment, explode in the face of the enemy. What you see is the preliminary explosion before the acid hits the skin. When it hits its enemy, like ants and other bugs, it causes them to curl up and die and burn. That's a bombardier beetle. What's remarkable about it is that those chambers inside his body never come into contact with each other. How could something like that evolve? See, that really messed with Charles Darwin. He didn't know what to do with the bombardier beetle. Because two chambers with chemicals that could never possibly intermix together, what happens if they mix internally? No more beetle. It's not possible. So Charles Darwin was caught up in the beetle collecting phase of many people during the time of the 1800s in England. He's out collecting beetles, trying to capture them for his collection. Standing in front of a tree, he saw one beetle that he didn't have and he wanted to have in his collection, grabbed it with his left hand. Saw another beetle that he wanted to have in his collection, it looked familiar to him but he wasn't sure so he grabbed it, put it in his right hand. Saw a third beetle on the tree that he'd never seen before. That beetle he wanted badly, and he didn't know what else to do, so he took his right-hand beetle and popped it in his mouth, reaching up and grabbing the other beetle remaining on the tree. The beetle that he popped into his mouth was a bombardier beetle. Can we say God's vengeance? It exploded in his mouth. And if you read his diaries, his biography, you see that he writes about the bombardier beetle leaving the acid burn inside his mouth. The acrid taste. See, our God is trying to get our attention. That's what God is doing. You see what God is after? He wants you to understand, I'm great. Here's who I am. Whether it's the little, tiny, explosive beetle or it's the big dog up in the universe. Pay attention. Here's who I am. Creation speaks to me. What does he want us to do in response to that? He wants us to give him glory. How do we do that? You've done it this morning already. You did it when you read the the passage together with Michael. This one you see on the screen. 1 Chronicles 29.11 says this. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty. And everything on heaven and earth belongs to you. So you did that. You said that together as a church. You proclaimed holy, holy, holy. You lifted God up. And so you gave him glory. Because we have all of this understanding, we have much to answer for as a people. We live at a very privileged period of time. Today, our our knowledge of the heavens and the earth is greater than every generation put together and combined that's ever lived before us. We're a very privileged people. Can you imagine what would Alexander the Great have given to be able to get into an airplane and see his empire? What would Solomon have given for a flushing toilet? What would Mozart have done with a synthesizer? How about Copernicus? If he had had Hubble at his disposal, We have all of this, and we have much to be accountable for. This type of knowledge cannot be discarded. So what God does in his providence, he reveals everything that I've just shared with you in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, he takes it a step further. And in the New Testament, he says, not only can I be known, but I want you to discover that you are accountable because you know me. God says, all of creation screams about who I am. Romans 1, look with me on the screen. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So not only does creation speak to us, and according to this, say, he's clearly seen. You cannot deny him. And when you study it, you come face to face with the immensity and the majesty of our God so that we are without excuse. No one can stand before God and say, I didn't know because he left his fingerprint all over the place. So here's the truth. I believe that Creator God is the most assaulted truth of the Bible. See, if you can remove creator God, you can remove creation. And if beings on planet Earth can remove the concept of creator God, they can remove the concept of a creator whom they have to answer to one day and allows them to live freely however they want because you remove all the rules. Very simply, what we know is, according to the Bible and what it teaches us, you heard Michael say it earlier, All of creation, everything on planet Earth, receives life from outside itself. We don't generate life from within ourselves. We have the ability to procreate only because God gave it to us. But life comes from outside us. Very simply, here's how you best explain that. When something dies, you can't put it back. It's not possible. Yes, we've learned ways, modern scientific ways of resuscitating life. We perhaps can bring it back for a week or a year or several years. But ultimately, everything dies. But the truth of Scripture is, and it's a profound truth, the Bible teaches that first there was life because God derives life from inside himself, not from outside God is life according to Scripture. And then physical matter and energy came into being. That's the truth of Scripture. So life gave rise to matter, not matter to life. Now, evolution would say matter gave rise to life. God says, I am life, and I gave rise to matter. So either God exists as the creator or matter existed first, And if that's the case, according to that line of reasoning, we are people without hope. We have no future. We're the result of primordial goo. But God says, I spoke. And for those who know the Word of God, especially church, because this church has looked at John 1 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God, and in Him was life. See, God has life in the beginning, it originates, it's already there. What's the implication for that, and why is that important to you? If you forget nothing else this morning, don't forget this. You can forget all the things about the stars, all the things about the trillions of distances, but don't forget this. Here's the implication for you the one who possesses life can impart life to you. This is why that's important. Because according to the Bible, before I knew Jesus, I was dead dead in my trespasses and sins. That's what we're told according to the Bible, Ephesians 2.1. We are dead in our sins. We stand opposed to God until God reveals himself to us and brings us into a personal relationship with him. Do you wonder why in the midst of your workaday world, your social workers, your friends, your family members can't understand this? Why people can't get this through their head? to understand this relationship to God? Here's the reason why. Satan works overtime to keep people in the darkness. This is what we're told in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 4.3, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan's working overtime because we're in this heavy darkness of sin. We're going to explore that next week. What happened in the fall? How did we leave the God of glory and creation and come to this point where this world is covered with sin? Because the world as a whole around us, many, not everyone, but many, totally miss their own Savior. But for those of us who were able to celebrate communion this morning with joy, understand that we celebrate it because we were delivered from darkness into light. Look with me on the screen. It comes from Colossians 1.13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's God tugging on you, pulling you into that relationship with him, just waiting for you to come to the point where you would confess it. And the way that God gives us life is by uniting us to Christ because apart from Jesus Christ, there is no life. So my Bible says this, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. You've discovered this morning that I have no Big Bang Theory. I have a Big God Theory. I'm not opposed to the Big Bang. I don't know how God did it. I just know that he did. And that God, according to my understanding, If you want to use the word theory, theory means a repeatable process that's proven itself over and over and over again in a lab. Well, if I'm the lab and God has proven himself time and time and time again in my life, I have a big God theory. The God of wonders is how great So I know that I know that I know that I know that not only does my God desire to communicate with me and communicate with you because he's a communicator, God is greater than the Hurricane Sandys in this world. God is greater than whatever is going to happen on Tuesday. God is greater than all the turmoil in the world. Let's go down one step further. God is greater than that spare tire you need on your car. God is greater than the broken washing machine you have back in your house. God is greater than the broken relationship you have in your house. And God is greater than whatever illness that you're facing. You need to know how great your God is because he's in control. And so before you become absorbed with all the issues going on around you, And you want to cry out like David, I am so insignificant. Why would you even pay attention to me, God? I know how great you are, but why would you even turn your attention to me? You want to look at the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 40, and that's what I'm going to end with this morning, because this is also who your God is Isaiah 40, 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Your God can impart life to you. If you're at the place where you're saying, I just don't feel like I have it. I invite you to come up and talk to me after the service. I'd be thrilled to pray with you. If we've never met before, introduce yourself. I'd be thrilled to meet you. But you could take confidence when you go out the door this morning. Your God is great, greater than all. Let's pray, new hope. Father, we're in humbleness. We bow before you, recognizing that we do feel like David, we feel like a bug. But you sent your son to die for these bugs for us. God, we see ourselves as a vapor because you said our time is limited here on earth. And in the scope and the scheme of a God of eternity, we recognize that that vapor disappears even more quickly than we might have ever imagined. As we go out the door this morning, Father, I ask that you would send us out with confidence, knowing not only how great you are, but how great your love is for us. That you sent your son, your one and only son, to die for us. And that that son was resurrected, that we might live also. Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for the boldness we feel right now, because you are great, and we declare it in truth. It's in Jesus' name we say this. Amen.